Welcome back to the second episode of the segment, Sci-Fi Cross-Sections, Futurism, and Humanity. In this episode, I explore something that I deeply care about, I think is very, very cool, and uh, and I always like to, I almost built a career around, um, explore the past fantasies, current realities, and future possibilities of artificial intelligence. The genesis of inorganic life with human capabilities is an endless journey we explore in science and sci-fi media. As I devour information and media from the likes of Alex Garland, Philip K. Dick, and Alan Turing, I realize that the modern human of the past 5,000 years has always had an inkling to create organic life. The geometric growth of the information age has opened new avenues to explore the cognitive abilities of the human mind. The foundation of modern computation and computer science was laid by mathematician, computer scientist, logician, cryptanalyst, philosopher, theoretical biologist, and one of my personal heroes, Alan Turing. Allow me to explore the gripping possibilities as explored by science fiction media in this episode of Sci-Fi Cross-Sections. Futurism. Hi, this is Bill again. I'm excited. I got some good feedback on that first episode of the segment, and I'm excited. I hope that gravy train keeps it chugging. So let's explore the history and future end of AI and its role in sci-fi. So the definition of artificial intelligence, AI, sometimes called machine intelligence, is intelligence demonstrated by machines in contrast to the natural intelligence displayed by humans and animals. So my definition of AI or artificial intelligence is the inexplicable feeling that occurs when a person looks at a machine or inorganic object and decides that it has thoughts and feelings. That's really what we mean by it, I think. We have artificial intelligence everywhere in history. So in early mythos and philosophy, many stories included automatons. One, one such example is in the Greek mythology. The telos was a construct crafted by Hephaestus with the aid of a cyclops to protect the island of Crete on behalf of its king, Minos. And that's just one example from ancient history. But let's uh, jump ahead a little bit. During the Enlightenment, Rene Descartes surmised that the human mind and body were separate entities. The mind was seen as a non-physical, non-spatial substance that cannot be manipulated by the physical world. This idea held for almost 100 years until the 18th century when the philosopher Christian Wolff proposed that the mind and body were of one substance. This allowed a physical entity to affect the mind. The perfect story to illustrate what's meant by this idea 
is the story of Phineas Gage. It's a story full of misinformation, admittedly, but at very heart is a very important idea that popped into the mind of modern psychology. Phineas was a railroad construction former born in 1821 on September 13th. On that fateful day, Phineas Gage was tamping into a hole where they packed gunpowder and sand in order to blast out holes for the railroad. He tamped that rod in such a way that it created a spark. And that spark projected that tamping rod, the sharp tamping rod, through Phineas's face into his skull, into his brain, and exited out of the back of his head. Now, you would think that this would surely kill him, but amazingly, he went home that day, walked onto the cart, and then exited off the cart, and then sat on his porch and made a miraculous recovery after a few weeks of heartache. After this point, Phineas began behaving erratically in a boisterous, rude manner that made him unrecognizable in personality to his friends and family. This was important for early psychology because this indicated that there was a connection between the mind and the physical brain, meaning that you're the type of personality you have, the virtues that you have, everything could be directed to the physical entity of the brain. As someone who studied for a long, long time, I could go on and on and on. But the current scientific thought holds that the idea that the mind is a function of the physical brain, the mind is considered an emergence of complex interactions among neurons, synapses, the connections between the brain cells. Given this thought, the function of your brain, i.e. the mind, could be implemented in something other than your brain cells. It could be a black box. You lock a black box, you can't look into the black box, and senses go in, reactions come out. You don't know what's in there, but it works. You know, the same interactions are happening. The same reactions are happening for every stimulus. And if that is the case, which it is because nobody really looks at your brain, except maybe a brain surgeon, and has a conversation with you. Now, if you were to accept this, then the black box could contain gears, semiconductors, brain cells, whatever. As long as the function is the same, the mind is the same. The philosophy of thought that supports this is called functionalism. Moving on, admittedly, after skipping over much of the psychological research and mathematical theory between these times, we stumble upon the 20th century. And contained within is the invention of the computer as a mathematical model using ones and zeros to produce an output for any given input, i.e. the play button, the keyboard, the mouse, the punch card, whatever. This machine... The mathematical model was called the Turing machine, proposed by Alan Turing as a general logic machine that could produce any written output given the appropriate input. So he also proposed that a machine like this could take on the function of the human mind. Now, some of you may be familiar with the Turing test. So if you don't know, the test is known as the AI test to discern if a machine can think. Turing did not like to use the word think because it created a roadblock in the thought process of thinking of artificial intelligent machines. So if a machine had to think, its intelligence could never be proven because we think internally about intelligence. Uh, instead, he wanted to determine the validity of an AI by the, its ability to imitate human minds. Subject A is in a room, and in two separate rooms is subject B, a human, and subject C, a computer. The human can interact with subject B and C by typing out messages and sending them to the subjects. 
if computer C can convince subject A that it is a human, it passes the test. Now that we've had a little big history lesson, let's move on to the modern day. So modern day media and where we could go from here. The number one piece of media that keeps coming to mind is the Alex Garland film Ex Machina. The basis of the film is that a man, Caleb, played by Domino Gleason, is given the opportunity to quote-unquote test the artificial intelligence Ava, played by Alicia Vikander. The reason I love this film so much is that it explicitly explores the world of artificial intelligence. I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, but basically you're left with the question at the end, like, did Ava really pass the test? It's a beautifully puzzling film. Now, another experience of a film is the 1982 Ridley Scott classic Blade Runner, based off the Philip K. Dick novel written 14 years prior, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Blade Runner and almost all films exploring artificial intelligence do so as a parable, as, you know, we used to tell stories about the, the turtle and the hare. We use them, artificial intelligences, as a way to explore our humanity and make decisions in our mind about humanity based on an outside perspective. We put a machine in the place of a human. We're actually able to really explore what makes us human, to explore the future of artificial intelligence, which is a lot less sexy than the movies, admittedly, but it's very cool nonetheless. One of the things I wanted to explore was the idea of automation taking over daily life. Obviously, we see this in things like Siri, uh, Alexa, Google Assistant, all of these things. But you take simple tasks, and not even simple anymore, we take difficult tasks to automate and that eliminates the need for a person to work, say, a job or function. This sounds interesting. This sounds interesting. I'm sure many of you are thinking this is problematic because our entire society has functioned as humans as the labor. We employ each other to do things for us. This brings up a quandary in many people's minds because the idea that you could take value from your product without having anything to do with the labor is striking and kind of goes against what our philosophy is as, let's say, Americans. That goes against our philosophy of you have to work hard to earn enough money to live, that you have to earn your ability to live. A lot of people have thought of the world this way. when. Automation takes every single job. What do we do? This becomes tricky and political, so I won't say what I think that should be done, but I'm just going to say that automation is the future and it's going to come and we're going to have to deal with it as a society. It's going to happen that everybody does not have to be involved in a production cycle. So this would mean that wages would go down while GDP goes up, which can be tricky. So I'll leave The Economist to explain that, but just knowing that the future is coming and that artificial intelligence will never not be part of it. I'm going to move away from the why and move more towards the how. When I talk about artificial intelligence, it is anything that is able to learn in my mind. So that's able to learn and exhibit intelligence in a way that humans see it as intelligence. At the beginning of the episode, what I said was that. It is the feeling that occurs in a human being 
when they see an object behaving in a way that they consider intelligent. This feeling is what we really seek in artificial intelligence, but in reality, a lot of artificial intelligence has already begun. We start to have rapidly learning models. Let's say that you look up shoes, a certain kind of shoes on Google. Wherever you go, you go to your favorite website, suddenly on the sidebar, there's those shoes, and then you go to Facebook and there's those shoes. And this is a sign of data sharing, but also at the same time, mining to find the things that you should be seeing based upon your preferences. People feel either way about this. They feel like it's invasive. They feel like, oh, hey, that's convenient. Now I only see things that I'd be interested in rather than crap. At the heart of it is a basic model of feedback and learning inside of the program or server. The basic model of artificial intelligence today is that you have a layer of input. Let's call it layers. We're just calling this thing layers. A layer for input, so let's say a picture, an image, or a video. Each subsequent layer, there's layers upon layers, of neurons take the values, however they're inputted into that original layer, they take those values and computate on them, and they do something, and another thing, and another thing. Maybe they multiply, maybe they add, whatever. They take numbers, and then they output in a certain way that indicates, let's say, it notices blonde hair, blue eyes in the image. It sees blonde hair, blue eyes. How does it do that? Well, that came from teaching it the skill. The neural network, as it's called, those layers, have to be trained to do its job correctly. So it will be trained based on data. So it'll be shown a whole bunch of blue eyes and a whole bunch of blonde hair and faces and things like that. That's just facial recognition in general. But it'll be shown a bunch of stuff like that, and then you'll have a network being trained to say, okay, so this is blue eyes, this isn't blue eyes, this is a blonde-haired person, this isn't a blonde-haired person. You take layer upon layer of those sorts of abstractions, and it starts to output in a way that humans understand it. Because we already know what a face is, we intuitively know what a face is. We want a machine that's able to do the same thing. And it doesn't have to be a facial recognition, it could be, will this engine this jet engine propel this vehicle in the proper way you train it on every single kind of vehicle and then you let it evaluate something that hasn't been built yet you build it and see if it's correct and you give it the proper feedback that's the sort of idea is that like how do i build a plane well i'll teach a computer to do it for me and that is where artificial intelligence comes into play with everything what makes a machine different than a human in our eyes? It's usually, when it comes to work, judgment. Can a computer judge such and such? Would a machine be able to determine if a, let's say, customer service call was properly handled? Did the person get angry and say the right things, but in the wrong tone? We judge these ideas as abstractions for humans to consider. Emotions and uh subtleties in language, but we are starting to see that when we use this thing called deep learning, it's becoming simpler, not easy, but simpler for machines to handle those sorts of concepts or ideas. A deep learning neural network is considered a neural network that has many, many layers, and each layer is thinner. They are thin layers, and it goes deep, deep, deep. 
So you take one of these neural networks and they're able to parse what a image looks like, or they're able to parse what a tone of voice sounds like by processing, 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 layer upon layer upon layer to abstract if someone is angry, to see if someone is happy in a picture, to see if someone sounds angry. We're finding more and more models are capable of handling these sorts of abstractions when it comes to things like human interaction with a company. I mean, it could be automated someday. It could eventually get to the point that you could have a full conversation and never know. And doesn't that mean that it passes the Turing test? Would that mean that humans are not the sole proprietors and owners of emotion and feeling? Maybe. We don't know, because if you look at your brain as a black box, then you don't really know what's going on. Now, in modern neurology, we have broken down the brain into cognitive portions, cognitive meaning the function of its mind. When your brain sees something and you interpret it, that has a certain part of the brain that it goes to. In general, it's a very, 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 very times a million complex symphony of neurons and synapses that produce our behavior. So in essence, having deep neural networks is the same thing as what our brains do. And that's not by accident. Neural networks were originally modeled upon the human brain, that there are certain gates and electrical impulses that your brain has to pass in order for you to behave in a certain way. Your brain gets feedback from the other parts of the brain, and that is your consciousness. That is your ability to really feel and reflect upon the things that the rest of your brain is doing. Now, this is the prefrontal cortex. That's the primary function of it, is to be executive, to make the judgment and make the decisions for the brain. When you have this feedback mechanism, is that consciousness? Is the feedback mechanism itself consciousness? Maybe. I mean, that's what a lot of people think, but at the end of the day, we really care about what the machine can do, not so much how it interacts with itself. So if it gives itself very good feedback all the time and it has a good feedback loop, then you could say that it is making judgments and interacting between feedback and neural networks, which might be considered consciousness. For us, we do interpret a lot of signals that were kind of hardwired into our brains, Why do we have anxiety? Why do people have anxiety? Why can't they just relax? Because if you relaxed, if you were one of the people that relaxed in the jungle and there was a tiger behind you and you got mauled by a tiger, your genes are gone. Your genetics are gone. That would be great if we could all feel that way. But that wasn't what survived. That wasn't what evolved. We have emotions. We have considering social situations because that was how we survived. That's how our winners of ancestors came to have us. In modern day, with our current technology, we were not evolved for this sort of uh, interaction due to our consciousness, due to our self-feedback. We were able to ascend in a way and pass on knowledge from one generation to another, thus causing us to grow. Now, artificial intelligence is going to have that passed onto it. Why do we feel that someone's face is angry when it's angry because we evolved to feel that because it was beneficial. We have to communicate that to a computer and how to interpret an angry face or a sad face or an angry tone of voice or a sad tone of voice. In everything we do, in essence, 
is to make computers more like us. If we have an intelligent computer, we want that intelligent computer to be intelligent in the way that a human is intelligent. We really are accidentally exploring our existential philosophy uh, through science, through computer science. We are exploring what it really means to be human. What really defines us and how do we put that into a machine? Where do we stop? That's the big question that a lot of sci-fi media asks about artificial intelligence. It's like Frankenstein. It's like Westworld. If you've watched Westworld, where you know we've created our own demise in a way. We've created the thing that will destroy us that is not a direct tool for destroying us, which is our likeness, our way of surviving, our nature being put into a machine. We're thinking to ourselves, well, they're much more efficient at everything. If, they, if a computer can do something, they could probably do it better than a human. That's the basic fear that's present in a lot of sci-fi media is that we are creating something that we can't handle. We're creating something that will outrun us because it feeds back into itself and thus gets out of hand and becomes the future, yada, 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 they'll destroy us. This is the fallacy of being human is that we fear change because you know like i said in caveman days when change happened usually it was for the worse you know if you found something good you stay there because you will die otherwise so you know our genetics are formed by this fear this fear of change and so we have to combat that if we're going to progress in essence if you're looking for embodied intelligence from an artificial intelligence that is an intelligence that looks, acts, and feels like a human, then we've got a ways to go. But if you're looking at the function of a computer, i.e. its mind, as uh, the solution for a problem, then it's very good at that. It's very good at specific problems that need a specific solution. But in terms of general intelligence and general embodied intelligence, Computers have a way to go. I mean, artificial intelligence has a way to go, admittedly. If you're looking for something that looks up and compares data in this very specific field, then yes, yes, we have intelligence for that. We have artificial intelligence for that. In terms of work, we can automate many things, including bookkeeping, telemarketing. I'm sure you've all experienced that. And a lot of different other avenues that Google, Amazon, a lot of the giant multi-billion dollar corporations are investing heavily into automation because it's one cheaper than a human and two it is the way of the future uh unfortunately or fortunately for us i don't believe that labor will be in our past in our lifetimes but possibly in our children's and our grandchildren's lifetimes they won't have to work in the same capacity that we work they will be able to explore their own sort of enterprises which might include art or business or any of those sorts of things but at a very basic production level most jobs will be automated at that point it's only a matter of time it's going to happen we are going to be post labor at some point and post scarcity at another point in a lot of ways, artificial intelligence is the spearhead for a lot of progress in other industries simply because there are certain things that need to be done 24-7. There are certain things that need to be done by the same entity in space. There needs to be a lot more done by a non-human agent, which is automation. We are afraid of it because it disrupts how we currently live. 
in a lot of ways, we are going to grow into it because it is the future and we will cross that bridge, uh, rest assured. It may be a while, may not be our generation, but eventually a lot of the work that's done by humans right now is going to be displaced by automation and a lot of disruption will come from it and we need to have them prepared for it. We do stand at a crossroads, not to be cliche, but we do stand at a crossroads where we can embrace the future and become part of it, or we can fall behind. It all depends on you. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, I just want to say thank you for being a patron and uh, I'll keep episodes coming out and there's probably going to be another one for May and then we'll catch up in June. So there's going to be a lot coming out in this way and I enjoy doing this. It's very in-depth and it's a lot more than I thought it would be, but it's really, really worth it and I love it. So um, there will be more coming and uh, and yeah, yeah. Until next time. Thank you.